I love family reunions. I do. I mean, this kind. I thought about saying interns, but that's not who you are. Welcome home, pastors. Welcome home. You have been missed. You have been prayed for. You have been loved at a distance. And now you're home. I love family reunions. Usually don't cry at my own, though. Would you please turn with me to John chapter 17 so I can gather my composure? John chapter 17. We have been working our way through the topic between the cross and Pentecost. What is it like to live in those in-between times? Between the absence of Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit. The end of May will be our Pentecost experience. But we're still in those in-between times. What is it like to live in a place that we may not want to have chosen to be on our own? The disciples, they wanted to be with Jesus. They walked with him for three years. They talked to him. They sat at his feet. They ate at his table. They loved being with him. And then he had the audacity to say, I am going away. No, Lord, no. I want you here. Don't forget that Peter walked with Jesus for three years and was pretty much a failure at what he did. And then when Jesus left and sent the Holy Spirit, he was empowered as the first bishop of the church and stood with the the divine power to be able to face death and to do so with joy. He walked with Jesus as a failure, but when Jesus lived in him, he was a kingdom success story. So, what would you like this morning? Do you want to walk with Jesus? Do you want to listen to him? Or would you rather fulfill all the promises that he has for you in Christ Jesus? Choose. What would you like? To walk with Jesus or to have Jesus so fully infill you, you would accomplish, as Paul says, exceedingly abundantly beyond what you ask or imagine. If you are able, would you stand for the reading of his word this morning? John chapter 17. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. John 17, 1. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all those you have given to him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
I glorified you on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. And now, the main text that I want to be speaking from this morning is John 17, verses 20 through 23. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given to me I have given to them. That the world may be completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved me even as you have loved them. Father, open our hearts, open our minds, open your word. It's in your name that we pray. Please be seated. The way a person prays reveals much about them, about their theology and about their values. You that have been in my class, you tease me. Because I always begin prayer this way. So Jesus... And you ask again and again, why do you believe, why do you begin with the word so? Well, it's very simple. It's my theology. It's an ongoing conversation I'm already having with Jesus. He's already begun the conversation. So Jesus, now I'll begin talking. You've been talking all along. Now I'll begin. But it also tells you that I have this ongoing conversation with him. It's never ended. So Jesus, come into this place. Open the hearts, open the minds, transform people that they may look and be just like you. So Jesus, your prayer life reveals your theology of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. What does your prayer life reveal? It also reveals your values, how you perceive that Jesus is working here on earth, how we go about asking for kingdom results. What does the kingdom look like that Jesus is bringing into a reality here on earth right now? If we actually exegeted your prayers, what would they reveal? So what do you pray for? Do you pray primarily for finances? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and wants to give that to you. How much do prayers for finance encompass your prayer life? For health? For illness? For suffering? He is the divine physician. How much time do you spend praying for that? How Jesus takes care of our sins. You heard the passage from Hebrews 10 that Elizabeth wrote, or that Elizabeth read. He has taken care of that. What 
values do you have for the coming kingdom that reveals your prayer life? May I encourage you, John 17 is a place to look. John 17 is the end of what we often call the upper room discourse, the teaching of Jesus right before he goes to the cross. It bookends with John chapter 13. And in chapel last week, you remember as, as all the students were lined up and they were washing each other's feet. That's the bookend of John 17. John 13 is the beginning of the teaching. It shows us what Jesus does. John 17 is showing us how Jesus speaks. Could I say to you, there is complete connection between what Jesus does and what he says. That may not be as true in our lives as I wish it was. But what Jesus says, what he declares about you, is predicated on the things that Jesus does for you. You look up as we praise God. John 13 tells us maybe you should spend more time looking down at your feet because he has come as a servant to take care of you. And in John 17, we are listening to the words being shared at the very center of the universe. The Son is talking to the Father about the new reality that the two of them are praying for to bring into being. Father, the hour has come. Glorify me as you glorify yourself. John 17 is getting at the heartbeat of precisely who Jesus is. As I was working through this passage over the last couple of weeks, John 17, I'm having quite a love-hate relationship with because I love what it teaches me, but it is so deep and so moving, I know I'm only scratching the surface. Often, if you would look through John 17 in your translations, you would see this probably broken into three basic passages. The first five verses is Jesus praying for himself. And then verses 6 through 19 is Jesus praying for his disciples. And then, Jesus, or, and then John 17, 20 and following is Jesus praying for all of those who will become followers because of the faithfulness of the apostles. That's you and that's me. John 17, 20, especially 20 through 23 is Jesus' prayer for us. John 17 actually has, you should not be surprised, from the Gospel of John, there are seven main petitions that Jesus prays to the Father for. Seven seems to be that wonderful, perfect number in the Gospel of John. Prayers six and seven are found in our passage Listen to John 17, verse 20. And I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. 
That's Jesus' final prayer before he leaves earth. That's his desire for you, for me, for us. That's what his desire is. Could I just simply this morning make three simple observations about this passage? And I hope the profound nature of how it should play out in our lives. First, as just one final note of preface, John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, sets the temporal agenda for this passage, sets the time in which this occurs. His prayer is for the here and now, not the there and then. He's not praying for what life will be like in heaven. He's praying for what life will be like in the here and now. This is not some eschatological hope that Jesus has. This is a present-day reality that he's praying for. He wants for us to be one. Observation number one. Nowhere in this passage does Jesus pray for the forgiveness of sin. Not for him, not for his disciples, or not for those of us that will become followers because of that. Jesus prays for our sharing in the very life of the triune God. Could I repeat that? Jesus prays for us to share in the very life of the triune God. Now listen, the the cross and Easter takes care of sin. But Pentecost is about life lived out in him. That is what I want you hungry for. Not just the forgiveness of sin, but what is it like to actually share life with the triune God? You can have forgiveness of sin, or you can actually share in the resurrection life he wants to gift to you. The choice is yours. But in the prayer, Jesus does not pray for the forgiveness of sin. He assumes that will be taking place on the cross. What he does pray for is that we would be one. And not just one, one like he and the Father are one. Here is Easter, the high holy day of the year, according to the church calendar. Easter makes life in Christ a possibility. Here's Pentecost, the end of May. Life in Christ becomes a reality. Which one should really be the high holy day? Now, forgive me, those of you that are mothers, forgive me. The church is moving towards Mother's Day, as what often becomes the springtime post-Easter high holy day. And Mother's Day often trumps Pentecost. May it not be so. May Pentecost, living life in union with God, is what we all hunger for because it's exactly, precisely what Jesus prays for. He does not pray for the forgiveness of sin. He knows that the cross, he knows that Easter takes care of it. 
but it is Pentecost that makes life in Christ, life in union with the triune God, a spiritual reality. Which will you hunger for? We seem to be satisfied at times with a system that adequately manages our sin. Forgiveness of sin is not what Jesus declares as the glory of God. Any more than the absence of a virus actually means a person is whole. It's not the absence of sin, but it's the presence of God that will change your life. The presence of the Father and the Son in intimate fellowship will greatly diminish your taste for sin. Did you hear me? The presence of the father-son relationship in your life will incredibly diminish your taste for sin. Observation number two. In John 17, verse 20, Jesus declares us unified. Literally, you are one. Not you are becoming one, or you might be one. If you do good things, you might ultimately become one eventually. He declares, when sins are forgiven, you are united with Christ as one. It is a reality he declares on his children. Uh, A pregnant pause. You are one. Not becoming one. You are one. That's a huge observation. Because we honestly think we are working towards oneness. No, you're not. You are declared as one, as unified. We are one here. If I had an hour, and I don't, I would begin reading through all of the passages in the New Testament that support this. Not just the Gospels, But when we go to Acts, Acts chapter 2, literally Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, Luke has to invent a word that's never been used before. Ready? Homothumadon. Luke just made it up because there is no Greek word to express what it means is they are all together as one. So Luke makes it up. Homothumadon. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And there were no needs among them. And if there were needs, they sold each other's need, they sold each other's materials and gave to one another. Homothumadon. They were one. Ephesians chapter 2 is the breaking down of the wall between the Gentiles and the Jews, and they are made into one living body. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to make your bodies, plural, 
into one living sacrifice. I could take you again and again and again. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but all are one in the Spirit. It is everywhere. You are declared one. I find it really interesting in this passage that Jesus actually prays for the disciples for the protection of that oneness. Father, protect them from the evil one. It is the oneness that needs protection above all else. Not you as an individual. It is the oneness, the unity of the body that needs protection. Protection from the evil one. The work of the Holy Spirit is to destroy unity. That's what he wants to do. Because the reflection of the glory of God is the unity of the body. The glory of God is actually seen manifest in you, plural. That makes me tremble. Father, is there anything that I might be doing that could harm the unity of the body? If so, clean me up so the body can be one. What if I am, what if I am actually working in compliance with the evil one to destroy the unity of the body. Could I say that again? What if I or one of you might actually be working complicitly with the evil one to destroy the unity of the body? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not an it, it's a person. Because only a person can be grieved. What happens if we are actually somehow working in a way that will grieve the Holy Spirit, grieve the unity of the body, which actually puts us in compliance with the evil one to destroy that work? Listen to Ephesians chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beg you to live a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, of the Spirit. Did you know that the unity of the Spirit is in jeopardy if we don't maintain it? There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, with one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Now listen to verse 25. So then, putting away falsehood. Putting away falsehood. Putting away falsehood. Paul says the very first thing that begins to destroy the unity is lying. 
If there is any wicked way in us, Lord, take it out, please. There is no room for lying in the kingdom of God or in the unity of the body. Let us all speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not make room for the devil. Lying, falsehood, anger, evil speaking, malice. All of these things are giving room in the body for the evil one to make a foothold. Please, don't allow that to happen. Thieves must give up stealing. Rather, let them labor and work honestly with their own hands. So that is to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up, as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. Listen, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with what you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Listen, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Forgiven is a really poor translation of this phrase. It's not forgiven, it's graced. Grace one another as God has graced you. That is the call of how we prevent from grieving the Holy Spirit and giving the evil one a foothold on our unity. We are one unless we give room to the evil one to come in by lying, cheap talk, lack of gracing one another. Jesus cries out to the Father, Father, I declare them as one. And sometimes we are our own worst enemy, aren't we? We create damage to ourselves and we create damage to the body. You'll see over to my right on the stone communion table a meal that Jesus has set for us. It is truly a keeping the unity meal. It is our chance to ingest Jesus and to allow him to work within us and hopefully work out of us. No room for lying. No room for evil speaking. No room for backbiting. No room for the evil one to have any place here at all. Observation number three from John 17. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me. Effective and spirit-enabled evangelism 
flows out of our unity. Can I say that once again? Effective and spirit-enabled evangelism flows out of our unity, not out of tools that you learn. Evangelism flows directly out of the unity of the body. Not out of tricks you learn to persuade somebody to pray a prayer. A true life-changing transformation takes about or t- takes place as people see the body, listen to me, and they want in. They don't want into heaven. They want into heaven on earth. That's what draws people to Christ, the unity of the body. Tools without the Spirit is equal to the world's way of seeking justice. It's, a, it's, it's social work versus spirit work. What do you want to be a part of? Social work or the work of the Spirit in our midst? So what, what do I pray for and what do I long to take place in your life? First life lesson I'd like you to take away. I want you to pursue prayer like Jesus. This summer, I would love for you to learn to pray like Jesus prays. Jesus, like all good Jewish boys, would have learned to pray by sitting on his mother's lap as she would have recited to him the Psalms. That's how Jesus learned to pray. He learned to pray by praying the Psalms. So, this is going to sound funny. What I'd like you to do is this summer be less creative in your prayer life and to be more biblical. Often, friends, as we pray, we pray and sound a lot like our culture. I want things. I want success. I'd like wealth. You're not going to find that in Scripture. I want you this summer to begin passionately praying the Psalms. I'd love you to pray what I would call the Jesus Creed. Those passages that I know Jesus prayed every day. He prayed the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He prayed that prayer three times a day. Do do you? And the Lord's Prayer. Pray the Lord's Prayer. Lord, especially I want what's in heaven to come down to earth. I want that to be a reality. I want the unity that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit practice in heaven. I'd like that here on earth right now and begin with me. I'd love you to sound like Paul. So begin praying the prayers of Paul throughout the books of the New Testament. Pray Ephesians chapter 2, verses 15 through 20. Pray it again and again and again. Pray Ephesians 3, 14 through 20. Pray it again and again and again. If I can say this, stop sounding like the culture and start sounding like Christ.
Stop sounding like the culture. Stop being creative with your prayers and be as biblically based as you can so your heart begins to resonate with who God is in Christ. Can I, can I, can I give you a real tough one? Memorize John 17. Learn and pray what Jesus prays in our presence. Start sounding just like Jesus as you pray. Read the 30 prayers that are listed in the book of Acts. Luke does not record a church at prayer sounding anything like the way I pray. People are arrested and put into prison and are going to be martyred. And the church never prays that they would get out. The church prays that they would be faithful as they are dying for their faith. That is, as President Gorbett said last week, that is bold prayer. I want you to not just pursue prayer. I want you to embrace prayer. Over the course of the last month, I've had several conversations. Ones that I've not been overly happy to have. As people have come into my office and they've been seeking wisdom, I've been asking questions. Oh, okay, well, what are you reading in the scriptures now as you're seeking the Lord's wisdom? I, I, I'm too busy. I, I can't read scripture. As you're praying, what are you praying? I've got too many things going on. I, I can't read scripture and I can't pray. And every time that conversation has ended and the person has gone out of my office, I have closed the door and wept. I mean physically wept. How are we going to make spirit-filled decisions how are we going to hear from on high when we don't have time to listen to his word and we don't have time to pray? I want you, this summer, to become people of prayer like Jesus, people of prayer like Paul, people of prayer. Embrace prayer. I want, you to, I want you to pursue Pentecost, the truth and the reality of what Pentecost is. I really want you to pursue it. Pentecost is not just the coming of the Holy Spirit. We, for, for the, for the uh, um, three months before we began this last uh, series, post-Easter, we were preaching through the ideas of pursuing power, Pursuing passion and pursuing purity. Listen to me carefully. Power, passion, and purity are byproducts of living a life in Christ. They are not something you pursue on their own. They are byproducts of living a righteous life in Christ. What I want you to do is I want you to pursue Pentecost. Not what does it mean for the Holy Spirit to come and for you to invite him into your heart. What I want you to do is to realize that Christ himself 
is inviting you into his home. Do you hear the difference? Somehow, in the evangelical church, we have not done each other any favors. Because we have constructed a scenario where we come to an altar and we pray a prayer and we say, Jesus, would you like to come and live in my heart? You've probably done that. That's the least Jesus wants to do. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, I and my Father want to come and invite you into our home. Which do you want? You want Jesus in your heart, or do you want to be so indwelled by the presence of the Father and the Son? Pentecost is not just the coming of the Holy Spirit. It is literally the Holy Spirit coming down to earth and inviting you into personal and unified fellowship with God himself. So which do you want? Do you want to be empowered to just do good things? Or do you want to live such a powerful life in the very presence of God himself that your entire life is transformed? Which, which do you want? We have set the bar so low in terms of entrance into the kingdom. What I would like for you to do this summer is set the bar so high and say, Jesus, I want everything you make available to me. Do not be a minimalist. Don't say, I just want the least. Ask for the most, and he will do exceedingly abundantly beyond what you ask. I promise you that. So first of all, what I want you to do, I want you to embrace prayer. Second, I want you to embrace Pentecost. It's coming. Get ready. The last thing I want you to do, ready for this? <laughs> I want you to fly. I want you to fly. Angie and I have been wrestling with all kinds of things here recently. We have aging parents that are a long way away. How do we care for them? We have grandbabies very far away. How do we care for them? We, we have been wrestling with all kinds of things. I've been feeling an unsettledness. I just, uh, I, I, I can't put things to rest. And I was having a conversation with an advisor. Listen to what he says. He said, David, I'm, I'm remembering Henry Nouwen. I don't know if you know the name Henry Nouwen. He is a Catholic mystic, if you will. But uh, um, is, is on the... 20 years ago was on the, the forefront of what it means to be uh, um, spiritually formed. Henry Nouwen gives an illustration of a trapeze artist, of all people. And I will quote this for you, so you don't have to look it up. He even gives me the reference. This is in a text. He said, Nouwen traveled with the flying Rodleys. And one day he asked the trapeze artist how they got to be so good. The secret, Rodley said, is that the flyer does nothing. 
and the catcher does everything. When I fly to the catcher, I simply stretch out my arms and hands and wait for him to catch me and pull me up. The worst thing that a flyer can do is to try to catch the catcher. I'm not supposed to catch him. It's his job to catch me. A flyer must fly, and a catcher must catch. And the flyer must trust, with outstretched arms, that his catcher will be there for you. Dave, I think that's where you are. And you must be feeling terribly vulnerable and yet excited. You want to do all things, he says. Your role is not to be a catcher. It's to be a flyer. It is God's job to catch you. He's got you, my friends. He's got you. He is calling you to do something that you can't do yourself, to be one. And he declares you to be one. That's who you are. And now fly, he says. Fly and you'll be the best evangelist ever. The closer you are to him, the closer you are to one another, you will draw people unto him. You will be effective in the ministry that he asks you to do. It will be impossible to do on your own. But in him, there are no limits to it. Fly, fly, and don't be a catcher. That's his job. I was looking at a Facebook post. I think it was yesterday. Nathan Maskery, you are a bad parent. When you have... Your daughter, I mean, she's our daughter. She was born here. She's our daughter, and you put her on a windowsill, and you say to her, fly. And you caught her. That's the metaphor. We are one. Fly that way. Fly that way. And let him catch you. Stop being the catcher. Just be the flyer. Trust him. My brothers and my sisters, trust him. And as we eat the meal that Christ has prepared for us, examine yourself. Ask yourself the questions. Is there anything in me that's been creating a lack of unity? If so, God, I throw it to you. You catch it. You take it away. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. Make us your children. Now fly.